Luke chapter 10. Look at verse 1 for the context. After these things, the Lord appointed other seventy also, sent them two by two before his face in every city and place whither he himself would come. Therefore he said unto them, The harvest is truly great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. So he sends the seventy out. And in verse 17, it says this, The seventy returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. He said unto them, I beheld, Satan is lightning, fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread upon serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Notwithstanding in this, rejoice not, that ye that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Here the seventy were sent to proclaim the gospel, the coming kingdom to those places where Jesus is about to commence his ministry. And here they return rejoicing. They were faithful in their commission and they were rejoicing in their victory. Imagine how wonderful it would be receiving a commission from the Lord Jesus Christ. He chose out 70 individuals to preach the gospel of grace to the house of Israel. They went in as lambs among wolves and they came out victorious. No doubt they had made many converts along the way. Now imagine being given power to tread upon serpents and scorpions. This, of course, is figurative language for having power over demonic forces or all the power of the enemy. They proclaim that even the devils were subject unto them. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Could you imagine being commissioned by Christ and having direct and immediate authority and power to cast out devils and to uh, overcome the very demons? Certainly right now, if you were given that power today, if Jesus was a, to appear to you and give you the same commission, I'm sure there's a list in your head of, yeah, I'm going to go to this person and cast out the devil, and then I'm going to go out to this person and cast out their demons, and i got a list. I'm just going to go down and cast out demons over these people I like so much. And they were victorious in it. And they come back to the Lord Jesus victorious and rejoicing and glad and happy. Wouldn't you be glad if you could obey such a commission of the Lord Jesus Christ? They glorified Jesus from whence this power came. They said it was through thy name they had this power. That is surely part of our confession to this day. It is through Christ alone, through his power alone. Jesus added this blessing of telling them that while they were away, that he saw Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Now this phrase is certainly one of the most difficult sayings of Jesus. Yet for the context I'm using it 
for confirmation of the preaching of the disciples here. That they were preaching the gospel of the kingdom, the coming kingdom. And Jesus said, I saw Satan as lightning fall from heaven. What a powerful testimony from the lips of the Lord Jesus about how efficacious they were in their preaching of the gospel. Wouldn't you just rejoice in heart and mind and soul to know that that would be what Jesus would say about you and your teaching and your preaching and your proclamation of the gospel? And he saw Satan fall as lightning immediately, fast, destructive, without resistance. Well, that would be wonderful, wouldn't it? Have you ever rejoiced in God's power in your life? Now you, every one of you, every station of life, have indeed a commission from the Lord Jesus. We certainly have all heard of the great commission to go into the world, preach the gospel to every creature. But whoever you are, and wherever you are, in whatever station of life, you have a commission, a mission, a quest to be achieved from the Lord Jesus Christ. And all the imperatives of scriptures, all the imperatives that relate to you and your position, are all commissions of the Lord Jesus Christ to go out and do this. An imperative is indeed a commission from Christ. All, there are many imperatives in Scripture for old men and old women, for husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, even for children. You know, you little children have imperatives. You have a commission from the Lord Jesus Christ. And isn't it wonderful as you think about in your life of learning about where Jesus has called you and to what Jesus has called you. In those times of your life where you are victorious in that calling. Aren't those some of the most happiest times of your lives? When you are most obedient and faithful to the Lord and He blesses you and you're gaining victory in your life, you have some understanding in your mind, you're actually applying Christianity you feel the movement of the Holy Spirit even. And you Christianity is just so real to you. Surely those are the most happiest times of your life. And wouldn't you want to just abide in that obedience, abide in that victory, and abide in that blessing? We are to teach and to be an example. The older men are to be examples of gravity and sobriety. You're to teach the younger man by explaining the Word of God and by living the Word of God. Old men are called to speak thou those things which become sound doctrine, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, and charity, and patient. This, of course, is from Titus 2. The aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the younger women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. 
Young men likewise to exhort to be sober-minded in all these things, showing thyself a pattern of good works, and doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. Wasn't that wonderful to think that if someone were to strictly observe your life, that they would say, there's no evil thing they could speak of you. Isn't that what you want? Isn't that your heart's desire as a Christian? Certainly should be. There are times where we need renewal to make this our goal. When we forget about that rejoicing in obedience. We're thankful for and God reminds us of His imperatives for us. When He reminds us of our commission. When He again returns to add blessing to obedience. In every area of life, judges are authorities, the governors, masters, slaves, exhort servants to be obedient to their own masters. That's a commission from the Lord Jesus Christ. And to please them well in all things, not answering again, not purloining, showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. And so many imperatives, just very practical issues of living out your Christianity. And all these are actual, all these imperatives for children, for husbands, for wives, for the older, for the younger, are all actual examples of evangelism. These are all practical examples of evangelism. Right now, uh, I stole all of that from Brother Jeff Young. He's doing a series on evangelism. And it's a, it's a wonderful series. I just might steal every word of it and preach it here. But living the Christian life and obeying God and doing what He has commissioned to you is every one of your responsibility and it is something very practical to do for evangelism. In fact, you cannot do evangelism without obeying these imperatives that apply to your station in life. All of these are for the outside world to look in upon us and be convicted for their sins and that they see a contradiction between us and them. You just living the Christian life is a form of evangelism. It is no different than being commissioned by Christ and being sent out like these 70 were. And previously, he had sent out the uh, 12 disciples likewise in the same way. There are missions for the rich, for the poor, for the Jew, for the Gentile, master and slave in Scripture. Even little children, children, obey your parents in the Lord. For this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Not just Christian children, not just baptized children, not just children who are allowed to partake of the Lord's Supper, but all children are commanded to obey your parents. All children can please the Lord. How can a little child please the Lord? Well, it's very simple. Obey your parents in all things. Let me ask you children, when you're naughty and you're disobedient and you've done something wrong, you've done something what mom and daddy told you not to do, how do you feel? you feel happy? Are you rejoicing inside even if you haven't gotten caught? 
Surely not. Surely, even a little child is most happy when they're obedient, and they know they're obedient, and they have a clean conscience. And mom and daddy recognize that obedience and bless them for their obedience. That's when children are most happy. Let me ask you, parents and adults, when are you the most obedient? When are you the most filled with the Holy Ghost? Are you not also the most happy? Obedience brings joy as much as sin makes misery. Obedience brings joy as much as sin makes misery. You remember when we read in Pilgrim's Progress, when Christian was at Palace Beautiful, and the virgins asked him of golden hours. Surely your golden hours are when you obey God after being empowered by prayer and the Holy Spirit. When you worship God with a full and free heart, when you have a clean conscience. And you can apply to the throne of grace. And instead of the mourning of sin for your sins, you are allowed to just freely pour forth worship and joy and adoration and praise. Surely there are times when you're singing in the church and all things come together and it becomes as if you can almost hear the angels in heaven singing with you. Are not those good times for a Christian? Are not those golden hours? When you look in your life and you see victories over Satan, have you ever been in combat with Apollyon? Surely if you're a Christian, you have at one time or another to some degree. And you come out the other side of that combat and you're alive, you may be wounded, but you're still a Christian. And you're still worshiping God. And Satan has not destroyed you. Satan has not crushed you. But you have gained the victory over Satan. I think perhaps I do not teach enough here on spiritual warfare. I probably ought to do a series on it. It just might be good for my own soul. But when you get the victory... How sweet is it? How much does your heart rejoice? I mean, we all like to win. There's nobody that ever enjoys losing, not even if you're playing Scrabble or Checkers or Tic-Tac-Toe. God made us to enjoy winning. And if you apply that with a Christian conscience, with a Christian heart, we ought to enjoy spiritual victories. This joy is a true joy. It's a good joy. It's a righteous joy. The disciples had every right and even an obligation to rejoice in obeying the commands of their Lord and seeing God bless what He has ordained and they get to be partakers of that grace. And they're rejoicing in the grace of God and the power of God. They're rejoicing in the preaching of the gospel and the effect of the gospel in the land of Israel. But how many people only have that kind of source for their joy, which is limited to their ability to overcome? As in this, when their overcoming ceases to be, and all of a sudden they're not as victorious as they once were, so their joy will also will fade. 
your obedience, your spiritual victories, though wonderful when we have them, are actually very poor foundations for your joy. They are not a solid foundation for rejoicing. You're called to rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. How can you do this without a better foundation than being victorious in spiritual warfare? Again, I'm not saying it's wrong to rejoice in it. When Jesus says rejoice not, he's being comparative. It's very common with Jesus to be comparative. What happens when you're not victorious? There have been times in your Christian life when you are not victorious, isn't there? There are times when you've just been outright defeated. You don't rejoice in that, do you? It's a shame. That even ruins the joy you would have. What happens when Satan has the upper hand in your life and heaven seems shut up and silent? What happens when you're going through a dark night of the soul? Where's your source of rejoicing then? How can you then obey the command, the imperative, to rejoice in the Lord always? You need a foundation which will not change with circumstance. You need a foundation which will not change with circumstance. Although I don't believe these disciples were among the 70 sent out, because it says he sent 70 also out. It may, may not have been, but uh, we do know from Matthew chapter 10 that Jesus sent his 12 disciples out to preach the coming kingdom. Do you know who was among them? Do you know who had all the same power over Satan? Had the same power over uh, to cast out evil spirits? and who gained all the same so-called spiritual victories that all the other disciples did? Judas. You have questions about the nature of the Holy Spirit working in Judas? I don't know all the details about it, but I know this. The Holy Spirit is sovereign, and he can do what he wants, when he wants, with whom he wants. I think there's sufficient evidence in Scripture to know the Holy Spirit can clearly come upon an unconverted man as Judas evidently was an unconverted man. And therefore I say Judas had every bit of much of rejoicing as these 70 did in their preaching of the gospel, and their victories over Satan and casting out devils. Again, we don't know all the details, but we know he rejoiced in the victories of preaching, but all the while he had a covetous heart and was scheming from the beginning for gain, showing ultimately he had no true faith. But yet here he was rejoicing in so-called spiritual victories. When it comes down to it, though, when you read of these imperatives, when you read of these commissions for you, even Jesus sending out these 70, he commissioned them and sent them out, told them what to do, told them what not to do. When it comes down to it, though, what are your options when it comes to an imperative in Scripture? Your options when it comes to obeying our Lord. Jesus calls you, commissions you, sends you out on a mission, and what are you going to do about it? Are you going to rejoice that you did what the Almighty God of the universe told you to do? 
Because it's not like you actually have a choice to obey. Or you could disobey and just sin against the Almighty God of the universe. But I wouldn't recommend that. That's not a very good plan. Certainly not a very good way to uh, find a foundation for rejoicing. Your choices are to obey or to be judged a sinner. I mean, do you, is it really necessary for you to rejoice in obeying God in these, in a legalistic way, such as, do you rejoice that you're not a sinner? That, or that you're not a murderer, you're not a bank robber, you're not a sodomite, you've never uh, embezzled, you've never done this, you've never done that. Well, God has told you not to do those things. You shouldn't do those. And it's expected that you don't do those things. And the positive commands is it is expected that you do them. In fact, it's sin if you don't do them. It would be sin for these disciples not to take authority over devils. Turn to Luke chapter 17. Typical uh, proof text for this idea. But Luke 17 is the strongest passage for destroying self-righteousness, works righteousness, free will righteousness. Luke 17 just destroys all works righteousness. Because there's this idea that in obedience, you have to have a, a more of a positive obedience to God. Starting in verse 6. The Lord said, If ye had faith as a grain of mustard seed, you might say to this sycamine tree, Be thou plucked up by the roots, and be thou planted in the sea, and it should obey you. But which of you... And he's contrasting faith with works. But which of you having a servant, a slave, plowing or feeding cattle, will say to him by and by when he has come from the field, Go, sit down to meat. And will not rather say unto him, Make ready wherewith I may sup and gird myself and serve me till I have eaten and drunken, and afterward thou shalt eat and drink. Doth he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded of him? I trow not. So likewise ye, in the exact same way, you, when you have done all those things which are commanded of you by me, by God the Father, by the Scripture, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. When you've done everything God has told you to do, even in your station of life, say, I am nothing but an unprofitable servant. We are called to serve God. And we're thankful that His service, in His service, that His yoke is easy and His burden is light. Our Christ is not a hard taskmaster. And He knows our infirmities. He knows our weaknesses. But what do you do when those sad times come, when there is no joy in His service? When there is no joy in His service? Do you rejoice that you've... What do you do when you're just tired, 
when heaven seems shut up, when your prayers are falling to the ground, where is your source of joy? Well, Jesus gives us our source of joy. When he says, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Here are the disciples at their highest point. But we know from reading the Gospels, there is going to be a low point, a very low point, like abandoning their Lord on the night he was crucified. There are times when we feel just like those disciples. But we have a foundation. Jesus sets a foundation here for our rejoicing in all things. Rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Lengthy quote from John Calvin. Wonderful quote. Listen to the, the wisdom of this quote. As the design of Christ to withdraw his disciples from a transistory joy, transitory joy, that they might glory in eternal life, he leads them to its origin and source, which is that they were chosen by God and adopted as his children. He might indeed have commanded them to rejoice that they had been regenerated by the Spirit of God, that they had become new creatures in Christ, that they had been enlightened in the hope of salvation, that they had received the earnest of inheritance, but he intended to point out the source from which all these benefits had flow was the free election of God, that they may not claim anything for themselves. Reasons for praising God are no doubt furnished by those acts of his kindness which he, we feel within us. But eternal election, which is without us, shows more clearly that our salvation rests on the pure goodness of God. The metaphorical expression, your names are written in heaven, means that they were acknowledged by God as his children and heirs as if they had been inscribed in a register. So herein is this, is that eternal election and having an understanding of election is an unchangeable ground and a cause for complete rejoicing in all things. If you have an understanding of election, then you have an understanding of why you can and should Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. Rejoicing in your election. As Calvin points out, Jesus is pointing to them the source of all grace. All grace, that is, everything in relation to God, everything in relation to uh, the Word of God being applied to your life, the truth of God being applied to your life, such as regeneration, being filled with the Spirit, obedience, sanctification, and all that, justification, adoption, all of that flows out of election. It's the ground, it's the root, it's the seed of every grace of God in your life, including your glorification. All graces flow from the eternal purpose of God. And Jesus points us to the true source of joy for the Christian. It is from your election, which is unchanging and eternal, that you can rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And sin cannot change this. Satan and all the devils of hell cannot change this. Your victories cannot improve it. 
Your obedience does not make it better, more sure, more... Uh, it does not make you more of the elect. Your obedience is not how you become the elect. Rather, you are obedient because you are the elect. Spurgeon said this, It is a book of remembrance where our names are written in. To be written in heaven means that we are precious in His sight of the Lord. That He has noted us down in the list of His crown jewels. He will preserve us for Himself till the day in which His sacred regalia shall be complete. Blessed are those who stand recorded in the inventory of heaven's jewel house. To be written in heaven means you claim the right of citizenship in the new Jerusalem. The church, the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. And just as there is a roll kept by great cities in which they inscribe the names of citizens, so do we rejoice that our names are written in the roll of the city above. Certainly here, this wonderful quote points out that for our names to be written in heaven, as he hearkens back to Malachi, that it involves that God imputes to us a preciousness, a valuableness, by virtue of being elect, we have value of God. We are God's possessive chosen and thus God's own integrity, God's own glory is integrally tied with His elect. God's honor is at stake when it comes to the elect of God. God has all sovereign power and purpose to glorify Himself forever and ever and ever. And as He has intertwined our fate with His glory, we can have a sure foundation for rejoicing in our future glorification. That our circumstances do not affect our coming glorification. That we are valuable to God as He has placed our name on us. So many different... Uh, Metaphors, not metaphors, but uh, de descriptions of how valuable we are to God, such as we are the apple of His eye. We are written on the palms of His hand. For you to rejoice in election, though it, it, then, it is then becoming for you to have an understanding of election. What does the Bible teach about this election wherein Jesus commands us to rejoice in and points us to rejoice in? Do you have an understanding of this election that makes you rejoice? Turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. This implies that Jesus, Jesus' Jesus's words imply that there is indeed a knowledge of election. How are you to rejoice that your names are written in heaven if you can or can't know if your names are written in heaven? Starting in verse 3, 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. And we will read down through verse 11.
according as his divine power, note this, hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Beside this, give all diligence to add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind, cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore, rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, that is all these things that they add to their faith, ye shall never fall, for so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The important part of what is said here is that we can make our election known unto us, manifested in our minds, it's more clear in our minds as we live out the Christian life. The children of God are distinguished from the reprobate by this mark that they live a godly and a holy life because it is the designed and end of election. It does not cause election. It cannot uncause election. But rather this whole section here is dealing with the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and our inheritance in Him. Sometimes if we are not diligent in our sanctification, if we're not diligent in our obedience, then we can be forgetful and we can lose our sight, uh, lose, we cannot see afar off. And if you cannot see afar off, if you cannot even see and remember and it's not in your mind that you've been purged from your own sins and you're even indulging in old sins, you're certainly not being able to see your eternal election, are you? But do you see how that when you live a life that is proscriptive, uh, that is, that's the exact wrong word to use, that is descriptive, of the elect, how that witnesses to your own mind that you are indeed of the elect. How when you are living the Christian life, that's why when you are living the Christian life, those hours are so glorious to you. Because it makes you knowledgeable of Jesus Christ. Uh, let me see here. Hence it is evident, I think this is a quote from, uh, from Calvin, I, I, I didn't put the reference. Hence it is Evident how wickedly some vile, unprincipled men prattle when they make a gratuitous election and excuse for licentiousness, as that we may sin with impunity because we've been predestined to righteousness and holiness. Yes, yeah, that's a quote from from uh, Calvin. I didn't put the quotation that the end of election is a godly and holy life. So, if the end of election is a godly and holy life. These things be in you and abound, which is the purpose of election. 
which is a fruit of election and confirmation of election. Uh, how that repudiates the antinomians who use some idea of predestination or election or free justification as a licentiousness that we may sin with impunity because we've been predestined. Uh, a few more proof verses. Turn to Romans chapter 8. We'll end in just, just a few minutes. So the subject here is knowing your election. If you know your election, then you can rejoice in your election. And part of it is knowing, is are you bearing the fruit of election, which is an obedient life? Not a perfectly obedient life, but are you being obedient to the Lord? Tree doesn't bear fruit 365 days a year, but it does bear fruit. Romans 8, starting in verse 12. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh, as in to earn a law righteousness, a self-righteousness. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. There's a, uh, <laughs> there is actual mortification of sin that proceeds from the flesh. There is a religiously trying in an unregenerate nature without the aid of the Holy Spirit, which a lot of times can look just like the real thing, but there is a mortification which proceeds from the flesh, but that fails because it's uh, uh, because of the weakness of the flesh or your free will. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For they have not received the bondage, the spirit of bondage again to fear, and is the bondage of having to be perfectly righteousness, or having to do enough works to have a works righteousness to be saved. That would be fearful. What if you're not doing enough? What if you're not good enough? What if you're not obedient enough? That's a slavery, a bondage, and the gospel's a call to free you from that. You have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And note this here in verse 16. The spirit itself beareth witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, join heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together. And being, having the witness of the Holy Spirit within you to testify to your own mind and heart, and that's not something I can communicate to you. That is something between you and God that you have to settle in your own mind. May God grant this witness. He freely gives this witness of the Spirit that we are the children of God. And certainly, the solid foundation for rejoicing is that you are a joint heir with Christ and you shall be glorified with him. The very glories of Jesus Christ are yours. And that is a constant, steady, sure foundation for rejoicing. No matter what's happening in your life, no matter what Satan is doing in your life, no matter what you're doing or not doing in your life, no matter how miserable you are at uh, living the Christian life, the Holy Spirit can witness that you are the Son of God, and that you are a joint heir with Christ.
Spirit is given to the sons of God gratuitously to witness to them that they are of God's elect. This witness is not always fresh in our minds, is it? Therefore, we need to hold that witness and have that witness ingrained as the first of wisdom in our minds that we are the elect of God. And when we obey Christ's command, and then we obey Christ's command to rejoice that your name is written in heaven. You cannot rejoice that your name is written in heaven unless you know that your name is written in heaven and you know your name is written in heaven by the witness of the Holy Spirit. And part of how the Holy Witness, the Spirit witnesses to you in your own mind and conscience is that you can compare yourself to the Word of God. Compare yourself to, uh, like it says in 1 Peter, are these things in your life? Is there obedience to your life? Are you being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ? So it's not just some mystical feeling that you have that you're just walking around one day and God just zaps you and you're like, oh, I'm a son of God. But there's a, an, an objective standard for which the Holy Spirit can use in your life to help you to understand that you are indeed of God's elect. That is the word of God. That's why the word of God is given. That's why these verses are given. That's why Peter says to make your calling and election sure. If you make your calling and election sure, that's a grounds for rejoicing in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And then that helps you to understand where and how all the other graces of Christianity fit together in your life. That they are all built upon the foundation of election. That is why election is such a vital, important doctrine for the Christian life. Is the doctrine of rejoicing vital Christianity? I mean, is, is rejoicing in the Lord Christianity 101? I kind of think it is. And so what is the ground of our rejoicing according to Jesus in Luke 10, 20? Rejoicing that our names are written in heaven. It is incumbent upon us then to learn about the nature of our election. And we will get more uh, directly, apply other verses next Sunday. I got one more page, but I don't want to go over this too fast. So next Sunday we will continue our rejoicing in election and looking uh, more particular what the Bible says about election and how that should cause us to rejoice. So with that, we will end.